Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all... You wrote that? Yesterday, as a matter of fact. It was written by an earthman named Shakespeare a long time ago. Which does not alter the fact that I wrote it again yesterday. and welcome to Ear Read This. My name's Ash, and today I shine like the eye of heaven to be talking about Shakespeare's sonnets. To be precise, the volume bearing that name that was published in 1609 by Thomas Thorpe. Shakespeare's sonnets, never before imprinted, contained 154 sonnets and the long poem A Lover's Complaint. The exact circumstances of that printing and the degree to which Shakespeare was involved in the process of publishing have attracted much speculation, as we will soon hear. Shakespeare is now immortally connected to the sonnet, so much so that the form he used is referred to as Shakespearean. However, this 1609 edition seems to have had a fairly lacklustre reception, nothing like the response to his earlier long poem, Venus and Adonis, which was so popular, the story goes, that its first edition was read literally to bits. For the next hundred years, the sonnets remained relatively obscure, and it is only in the late 18th century that they were once again republished in full. On today's podcast, we'll look at the reasons for this, question some of the conventional ways of interpreting the sequence, and delve a little into the numerous controversies and conspiracies that surround the volume. And to do so, I am delighted to be joined by a very special guest. It's a great honour for me to have on the podcast Sir Stanley Wells. Stanley, as many of you will know, is a giant of Shakespeare letters and criticism, having written many books including The Poet and His Plays, Shakespeare for All Time, and Shakespeare, Sex and Love. He is the general editor of the Oxford Shakespeare and the Penguin Shakespeare series. He was elected honorary president of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust in 2011 and received a knighthood in 2016 for his services to Shakespeare scholarship. Most recently, with collaborator Paul Edmondson, Stanley has published All the Sonnets of Shakespeare, which not only frames the sonnets in chronological order, but also includes sonnets that occur in Shakespeare's plays. We'll be discussing this book more on tomorrow's follow-up episode. After the name William Shakespeare, Stanley Wells is the name that occurs most frequently on my bookshelves, so it was an enormous privilege to have the opportunity to speak to him, and I am very, very grateful to him uh, for coming on the podcast. I started off by asking where Shakespeare was in his career when Thorpe's edition was published in 1609, and what was known of Shakespeare's sonnet writing before then. We first hear of Shakespeare as a writer of sonnets in 1598, when he was 34. In 1598, there's a literary chronicler called Francis Mears, who writes very praisingly of Shakespeare as a playwright, and also refers to what he calls his sugared sonnets among his Mm. private friends. That's a very enigmatic statement. Sugared sonnets suggest sweetness, Private friends suggest intimacy of some kind. We don't know what sonnets they were. We don't know what exactly all that means. In the following year, two sonnets appeared in a collection called The Passionate Pilgrim, a funny little volume. It only had 20 poems in it. uh, And some of them are by identifiable poets. Some of them are by unidentifiable poets. And The Passionate Pilgrim includes versions of sonnets 178 and 144 as they were to appear later. 
It also includes three sonnets about Venus and Adonis, which are not attributed to to anybody in this volume. Because Shakespeare published his long poem, Venus and Adonis, in 1593. Very amusing, very witty, very sexy poem about the attempt of Venus to seduce the handsome young man uh, Adonis. And uh, we do, in fact, include in all the sonnets of Shakespeare three of these sonnets because we conjecture, it's only a conjecture, that they might be Shakespeare's own uh, sketches for the long poem, which is to publish later. Ah. So that's what happened in 1599. And then in 1609, 10 years later, appeared a whole collection of Shakespeare's sonnets uh, called Shakespeare's Sonnets Never Before Imprinted. It's a third person title, isn't it? Mm. It's not sonnets by me, William Shakespeare. It's Shakespeare's sonnets. And the publisher is offering them to the, to the public. It sound, it, that the, the phrase never before imprinted seems to imply that they'd been written quite a long time before. It seems to imply that they'd perhaps even been long awaited. But here they are. And they're given to the public by the publisher, Thomas Thorpe, who himself supplies a dedication to the volume. The dedication in full reads, To the only begetter of these ensuing sonnets, Mr WH, all happiness and that eternity promised by our ever-loving poet, wisheth the well-wishing adventurer in setting forth. It is signed with the initials of the publisher, Thomas Thorpe, Thorpe was known to write dedications on behalf of authors who were dead or in absentia, and given that 1609 was a plague year, it is feasible that he had to do so here for Shakespeare. Nevertheless, the peculiar, awkward syntax of the dedication, its pyramidal layout, and the question of who WH was have all attracted literary sleuths. So right from its first page, Shakespeare's sonnets has appeared to some readers as a riddle, though others have expressed disdain for this tendency. W.H. Auden, for example, said there has been more nonsense written about Shakespeare's sonnets than any other piece of literature. Chief among the suggested candidates for W.H. include William Herbert and Henry Rothsley, while others argue the case that Thorpe was simply honouring the poem's author, W.H. being a misprint of W.S. or standing for William himself. Literary detectives have gone so far as setting out the dedication in a graph, in order to find the full name of Henry Rothsley hidden in the style of a word search, or suggesting that Rothsley's initials were reversed to reflect the reversal of his status and fortunes, as in 1601 he had been sent to the Tower of London and sentenced to be executed. The lengths to which cryptomaniacs have gone has wearied critics like Colin Burrow, who said that since the 19th century, the dedication has become a dank pit in which speculation wallows and founders. However, Elizabethan poets and letter writers did seem to enjoy trickery and literary games involving initials. For a depiction of this, we need to look no further than a famous scene from Twelfth Night, in which Malvolio decodes a love letter. Under the impression that its sender is Olivia, Malvolio reads aloud, I may command where I adore, but silence like a lucrece knife, with bloodless stroke my heart doth gore. M-O-A-I doth sway my life. In reality, the letter is a ruse forged by Olivia's maid, Maria, but that hasn't stopped critics wondering about the significance of those initials. Conclusions they have come up with include an indication of Malvolio's self-admiration and centrality, reading the initials as meaning I'm Alpha and Omega. 
Others also reorder the initials but get I am O, meaning I am Olivia. Or even moans of sexual ecstasy following M for Malvolio. On the face of it, however, the riddle seems much more simple. M-O-A-I doth sway my life, does, as Malvolio interprets, indicate his name. Swaying back and forth, we take the first, then the last letters of his name, M and O, followed by the second and the second last, A and I. The rest of his name is omitted, left silent, its heart gored by a bloodless stroke. Even this comic example of playing games with initials lends some credence to those who take WH to be a fustian riddle. So who the hell master WS is? People have been trying to guess uh, for a very, very long time indeed, and nobody has come up with very satisfying answer. Some people have thought it might be some eminent person, like the Earl of Southampton with his initials reversed, which seems a bit dotty. Uh, <laughs> others uh, think it might even have been somebody who was not otherwise known to posterity. Uh, so we just don't know. But that volume, 1609 Shakespeare's Sonnets, includes 154 sonnets, which until now have always formed the basis of editions of the sonnets, at least since uh, 1790, when Malone first pub- published them, a reprint of them. Yeah. At this point, of course, Shakespeare was late in his career. He was already a very highly respected playwright. About half of his plays had appeared in print in quarto, uh, some of them with, with his name on them. The, the whole volume, of course, of his plays, was uh, the first folio, was not to appear until seven years after he died in 1623. Uh, but Shakespeare at this point was at a, a late point in his career, almost at the end of his playwriting career, in fact. The two genuine sonnets included in A Passionate Pilgrim attest to the longevity of Shakespeare's interest in the form. Stanley and Paul Edmondson date Shakespeare's earliest sonnets to before 1582, meaning the text as a whole could amount to a work spanning over 20 years. If, as they argue, Shakespeare didn't write with the intention of publication, then we can conclude he wrote chiefly for his own edification, dealing with emotional material that occupied him from a young age. Don Patterson has written that the entire emotional landscape of the sonnets is adolescent, not in a pejorative way, but instead providing what Patterson calls a thrilling prospect of a hyper-articulate 30-something writing with the emotional intensity of a man half his age. True to the sonnet tradition, the theme of love dominates the sequence, but not only does it cover a wide array of other subjects, such as grief, insomnia, death and time, but the voice of the sonnet seems to shift gender and sexuality, accommodating, as Stanley and Paul Edmondson write, many different kinds of imagined speakers. And do we have any indication of how the 1609 publication was received, whether it was a hit or not? Well, I think you might reasonably say it was a flop. It was not reprinted. Uh, Whereas Venus and Adonis had been reprinted 13 times in Shakespeare's lifetime, it was easily the most popular publication of his Mm. uh, of all. But the sonnets, there's no, there's no reprint. Uh, we have very little. There's no, of course, in those days there were no <laughs> reviews uh, of them. We, we know that the great actor Edward Allen bought bought a copy soon mm. after publication because in his journals uh, he says he paid sixpence for it, which would be a reasonable sum. But no, they were ignored virtually. After those warm words of Francis Mears in 1598, saying that in honey-tongued Shakespeare the witty soul of Ovid lives on, critical appreciations of the sonnets take something of a dive. In the margin of one of the precious 13 surviving quartos of Shakespeare's sonnets, an early reader has scribbled, 
What a heap of wretched, infidel stuff. And in 1780, George Stevenson declared that the sonnets contained the highest strain of affectation, pedantry, circumlocution and nonsense, saying that even the strongest act of Parliament couldn't get readers to bother with them. Henry Hallam, father of Tennyson's friend Arthur, the subject of In Memoriam, read Shakespeare's sonnets and after wished they had never been written. Distaste surrounding the sequence's homosexual content and the forms falling out of fashion relegated the sonnet's reputation to that of one of Shakespeare's embarrassing side projects. Wordsworth rebuked such frowning critics in his Scorn Not the Sonnet, a sonnet about sonnets, giving a history of its highs and making the now famous declaration that with this key, Shakespeare unlocked his heart. If you're enjoying what you've heard so far, why not consider becoming a patron of the podcast, which enables you to access exclusive bonus episodes of Ear Read This, including shows on people like Raymond Chandler, Robert Louis Stevenson, and Ovid. To sign up, simply visit patreon.com slash earreadthis. Now, on with the show. What would a reading public of the time uh, make of a sonnet sequence like that, of 154 sonnets? Was that a common uh, genre? It depends a bit how old they were, because from Mm. 1591 to 1597, the sonnet sequence was a very popular form. It was started off by the publication of Philip Sidney's collection, Astrophil and Stella, and that inaugurated a sudden vogue for collections of sonnets. Of course, it goes back to the Italian poets, Petrarch and Dante, of the 15th century. Their sonnets were known in England, some of them had been translated. The, the sonnet was introduced into English publication by Tottle, the publisher Tottle, in his uh, collection of, of sonnets. And that included the sonnets by the poets Wyatt, Thomas Wyatt and the Earl of Surrey. So the, the sonnet form was known, there had been a few sonnet collections before uh, 1591, but 1591-1597 was the, the period when the sonnet was in the was most fashionable. And it's also the period when Shakespeare himself was writing sonnets in his plays more, more mm. commonly than at any other point. And this, of course, is, is very relevant to our book. I say our because it's a joint publication, joint authored by my friend Paul Edmondson and me, uh, because in this book, for the first time ever, we've juxtaposed the, the non-dramatic sonnets with the sonnets from Shakespeare's plays. Uh, most mm. famously, I suppose, the sonnets from the plays include uh, the prologue to Romeo and Juliet, the two choruses to Romeo and Juliet, and the first meeting of Romeo and Juliet is in sonnet form. Uh, There Mm. are several sonnets in Love's Labour's Lost when the lords are wooing their their, their lady friends. So Shakespeare is writing non-dramatic sonnets. Uh, At the time, he's also most commonly writing sonnets in his plays, but he goes on doing that throughout his career. Sir Thomas Wyatt was an ambassador in the court of Henry VIII, who spent a few months in the Tower under suspicion of having an affair with Anne Boleyn. He is also credited with the first English experiments with the Petrarchan sonnet form, making the first transformations from octave sestet to the form we associate now with Shakespeare. His own verses have long been considered to contain references to Boleyn, including in particular the sonnet in which he addresses a brunette, who in an early version of the poem did set our country in a roar. Wyatt was writing in the time of Henry VIII, before the fashion for sonnet sequences peaked in the 1590s. John Kerrigan suggests that just as in Pericles, Shakespeare harked back to the comedy of errors, 
In the 1609 quarter of his sonnets, he was looking back admiringly to the sonnet sequences published in his youth, Astrophil and Stella, Delia by Samuel Daniel, and Phyllis by Thomas Lodge. One sequence that particularly informs the ordering of Shakespeare's 1609 quarto is Edmund Spencer's Amoretti and Epithalamian. This is a sequence of 89 sonnets, followed by a four-part anacreontic poem depicting Cupid, and finally a long poem called Epithalamian. Shakespeare's sequence contains 154 sonnets, the last two of which have a strikingly different tone, also featuring Cupid, and finally comes the long poem A Lover's Complaint. Um, in your the introduction to your book, you provide us with a, a table of pairs and mini sequences that you yes. um, identified and, and you um, list them with the thematic or content linkage. And they're things like love and sin, procreation, love and appearances, mistakes in love, sickness in love. A little, a basic question, I suppose. What is it about the sonnet that made it so linked to love poetry? Well, it's part, it's tradition primarily, I suppose. Again, going back to the 15th century, to, to Petrarch, Petrarch's sonnets, to Laura, uh, the sonnets of Dante. But also, it's not only love, it's also a secular love, but it's also sacred love, you know, because there are yeah. sonnets, sequences, which are composed of, of religious poems. John Donne used the sonnet for most famously for mm. his, his wonderful sacred sonnets. Indeed, the first published sequence in English is actually in 1560, is by a woman, Anne Locke, and it is a series of sacred sonnets. But of course, love uh, is secular love and sacred love. So uh, it became associated mm. by tradition with, with love of more than one kind. The word sonnet comes from the Italian sonetto, meaning a little sound or melody. The Petrarchan sonnet that Thomas Wyatt had experimented with was, like those written by Shakespeare, 14 lines long and written in iambic pentameter. However, the 14 lines were divided into an octave and a sestet, the rhyme scheme of the octave going A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, and the sestet being either C, D, E, C, D, E, or C, D, C, D, C, D. The division between octave and sestet breaks the subject of the poem into two, the octave lays out an argument, and the sestet provides a resolution. The first line of the sestet introduces the change or turn known as the volta, and often this still comes with the ninth line in Shakespeare's sonnets, though sometimes he saves the resolution until the very last moment. However, using an octave and a sestet had begun to change with Wyatt, and by Shakespeare's sonnets we find instead three quatrains and a couplet. The rhyme scheme has changed too into ABAB, CDCD, E-F-E-F-G-G. Don Patterson suggests that if Shakespeare's sonnets were read as one enormous poem, the Volta would come around sonnet 88 and 89, bizarrely, as he says, a Fibonacci number, and therefore strongly emblematic of the golden section. The natural ratio, he believes, influences the division of the octave and the sestet. Um, and the Shakespearean sonnet, as, as it has become known, is very recognisable. Yeah. But how much throughout... His sequence does he vary that form? Very little, very little. It's it's almost entire. Uh, almost all the sonnets are written in the same form. There are three that are that are anomalous. Uh, one of them has an extra line, sonnet ninety nine, an extra sort of introductory line. 
the forward violet, thus did I chide, and then he tells you how he chided the violet, <laughs> and two others also. Uh, one of them has uh, only uh, 12 lines followed by a couple of pairs of brackets. So there are there are three anomalies, but basically the 14-line solid is universal in the collection. And broadly, how is the sequence of 154 divided thematically? Well, that's a complex question. Uh, <laughs> Because in the volume itself, the sonnets are not divided thematically. There's no division. Uh, they are just printed one after the other sequentially. Uh, in 1790, the great editor Malone, Edmund Malone, published the sonnets and declared that the first 124 were all addressed to uh, a young man to whom he called the fair youth, and that the remainder were addressed to a dark lady. Now, this is something which we are very concerned to combat, to mm. deny that the sonnets are divisible in that way, because we see much more variety in the sonnets than Malone was, uh, will, was willing to admit. The first 17 sonnets are a, a sort of mini sequence, because all of those are addressed to a young man, urging him to marry. Even so, they are virtually love poems by the poet to the young man. Although he's urging him to marry, it's very clear that he's in love with the young man, that he admires him. And he speaks very intimately indeed in ways that have not always been recognized. Mm. Uh, I think I was the first person to point out the, the, the reference in one of them to the line that goes, in your bud, bury us thy content. That, I'm sure, is a sexual reference, is a reference to masturbation. Yeah. The bud is the tip of the penis, and burying his content means that he's uh, not propagating, but, well, masturbating, putting it straightforwardly. Yeah. Uh, and people have been very reluctant to, to see these some of these sexual references, uh, but, yeah. but I, I'm sure that that one is there. So the, the first 17 are uh, addressed to a young man, but after that, the sonnets have many different purposes. For example, we identify two of them as epistolary sonnets, adding to the collection of Shakespeare's letters. One of them is clearly intended to accompany the gift of a book, and it's only, it was only last year that an article appeared by a student of the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford, it appeared in Notes and Queries, remarking that the book was clearly an almanac. And I'm sure that's absolutely right, uh, because he talks about using the blanks of the book to write on, Well, almanacs did have blanks. So that's an example of a, a sonnet which is not exactly a love poem. It's certainly lovingly written, but it mm. accompanies a gift to the beloved person, which is an example of the, of the fact that the sonnets are not all uh, uniformly uh, love poems, one first to a, a male and then to the so-called dark lady. And also in the dark, so-called dark lady sonnets, we point out there's only seven of the last po poems in the collection, which have often been regarded as the dark lady sonnets, only seven of them are, are identifiably addressed to a woman at all. So there's been a lot of misunderstanding about these poems. Yeah. Um, I'd love to know how how it went down when you first um, identified 
the reference to masturbation. Uh, well, I don't know. I haven't had any reactions, but I, I don't know how they can do that. In fact, I, I identified it because I was asked to write a preface to a mm. book by Eric Partridge, Shakespeare's Bawdy, uh, a reprint of that book. And I pointed out that even he, who found a lot of Bawdy references in Shakespeare, quite rightly, had missed that one. So I, I, mm. uh, one doesn't necessarily get reactions. <laughs> <laughs> The convention that Malone inaugurated has the sequence dividing its attentions between a young man, or fair youth, and a dark lady. Candidates we mentioned earlier, William Herbert and Henry Rothsley, to whom Shakespeare had dedicated Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucrece, have been suggested as the former, and as for the dark lady, Herbert's wife and the poet Amelia Lanya emerge as the conventional favourites, although debate continues on whether the lady is dark-skinned, dark-hearted, or darkly abstracted by the poet. As Stanley says, to simply split the sequence into two is limiting, as is a straightforward, literal, biographical interpretation. W. H. Auden cautioned readers of the sonnets that trying to identify characters is an idiot's job, pointless and uninteresting. It's just gossip, and gossip, though it can be exceedingly interesting when the parties are alive, is not at all interesting when they're dead. Auden believed that Shakespeare wrote his sonnets as one writes a diary, for himself alone, with no thought of a public. But this was not the kind of diary that would neatly unlock Shakespeare's heart. As John Kerrigan points out, autobiography hardly exists in 16th century England. It was not until the 17th century that the keeping of diaries and the framing of memoirs began in earnest. Robert Browning responded to Wordsworth's claim that with this key Shakespeare unlocked his heart by saying, did Shakespeare? If so, the less Shakespeare he. This may refer first to the primacy of Shakespeare's plays in assessments of his reputation, but also to the multipersonal, playful and elusive tone of voice found in the sonnets. This has led some to regard the sonnets as dramatic exercises, almost like warm-ups for characters in the plays. Sonnet 33, for instance, has been claimed as a dry run for Howell's famous soliloquy in Henry IV Part I. Peter Ackroyd writes that we might say that in the sonnets, Shakespeare imagined what it would be like to be in the situations he describes. If a consummate actor wrote poetry, this is what it would be like. This is disputable. A lot, some people think that the poems are not private utterances by Shakespeare, but they conceive them as, uh, as if they were somehow dramatic exercises, as if Shakespeare was writing imaginary speeches or speeches for an imaginary play. This, I think, is an evasion. It's an evasion of the personality behind the sonnets. The idea that mm. somehow you don't need to believe that Shakespeare really means what he's saying because he's just somehow writing what might have been a speech for Angelo or Troilus or, or a character in a play. That, I think, is evasive. It's a way of evading the intimacy of the poems about Shakespeare's own private sexual life. And is that why, because the, the sonnets have... Um, attracted many critics to to try and crack them as if there is the that they're somehow not published in in the correct order that somehow they were it's taken someone else to unravel them. What is it about the sonnets that has I guess led readers to think that there there is more of a puzzle to them than than the plays, for instance, um, and and try and sort of work out their own sequence as if 
the the original published order from 1609 is is erroneous well i i don't think that 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 has happened i think most people have accepted the, the original order, the 69 published order, as if it was Shakespeare's own desired presentation of the poems, as if he wanted them uh, to appear in that way. Uh, but you crack that idea if you realize, for example, uh, as was only pointed out again fairly recently, it was only in 1971 that Andrew Gurr pointed out that Sonnet 145 is addressed by Shakespeare to Anne Hathaway and includes a pun in, in, in the final couplet on her name, Hathaway. Uh, that, I think, is undeniable. Uh, but if you accept that, it means that Shakespeare was writing a song when he was wooing Anne Hathaway, when he was only 18 years old, long before the, the traditional view of, of when Shakespeare started writing sonnets. So that mm. in itself is enough, I think, to crack the idea that this is a sonnet sequence composed by Shakespeare from beginning to end as a continuous se sequence of poems. Mm. Just as I think also the two letter poems also crack the idea that, 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 that this is a, a, a determined sequence of love poems. I wanted to ask you who um, John Benson was. Um, you mentioned his, yeah. him in the story um, in your introduction. Yeah, well, the sonnets were printed in 1609 and then there was a reprint by a publisher called John Benson in 1640. But it wasn't a direct reprint of the, of the 16 vol volume. It makes many changes to them. It runs some of them together to make longer poems. It alters the pronouns of some of them to make sonnets uh, uh, appear to be to a woman when in fact they're addressed to a man, as, as if that was a sort of form of censorship. Uh, it's a mangled volume. Uh, it omits some of the sonnets. Uh, but that was an influential volume because that is how they were presented to the public for over a century uh, in Benson's reprinted edition. It was that that went on being reprinted and representing Shakespeare as a sonneteer rather than the 1609 volume, which was first uh, revived, as it were, by Malone in 1790. The ordering of Shakespeare's sonnets has attracted much debate. Some, like Auden, claiming that it is obvious they were printed in an entirely higgledy-piggledy way. Many agree that the order is entirely down to Thomas Thorpe and not done under Shakespeare's supervision thus laying down a challenge that there is a correct order in there somewhere, waiting to be found. This has led to many reordering experiments. We've already heard of John Benson, who not only changed the pronouns of some of the homoerotic poems, but also ran sonnets together to form longer works. In the 20th century, editors like Dennis Bray and John Padell made famous rearrangements, linking poems by common rhyming words in the first case, and creating triads or tetrads of sonnets in the second. However, whether or not Shakespeare oversaw the whole ordering, it cannot be claimed that the entire collection is higgledy-piggledy, as the thematic linkages in Stanley and Paul Edmondson's book shows consecutive sonnets often have subject matter, imagery and first words in common. Furthermore, as Jonathan Bate writes, the first sonnet on the power of time is number 12, and its first line concerns a clock, which counts in twelves. The climactic sonnet on the same theme which begins, Like as the waves make towards the pebbled shores, so do our minutes hasten to their end, is sonnet 60, the number of minutes that are ended by an hour. Finally, on, on just uh, Shakespeare's sonnets, for a writer who 
at best seems quite flippant about publishing his plays. There does seem this to be a recurring occupation throughout the sonnets of the resilience of his verse over time. My love shall in my verse ever live young. Is it safe to conclude that he rated his sonnets more highly than his plays? No, I don't think we necessarily we have reason to suppose that he thought his sonnets were, as it were, better than Hamlet or King Lear. But I think we, it is reasonable to suppose that they're more personal, that he regarded them as I- I- intimate poems in which he was revealing his inner self, his emotions, his emotions of, of love for more than one person. And that would explain, help to explain, I think, why they're both... Uh, important to him, but also importantly confidential. Why he himself... Now, there's a parallel here again with John Donne, the great poet John Donne, who wrote some very sexy, confessionally amorous poems, in his case about about heterosexual relationships, which were not published till after after he died. So I think Mm. there's... I don't believe myself that Shakespeare wanted his songs to be published in his lifetime. And on that note, I'm afraid to say we will have to leave things here for now. But to hear more from Stanley, tune back in tomorrow, where I'll be asking him more about his work, and in particular, his recent book with Paul Edmondson, All the Sonnets of Shakespeare, which you can also purchase a copy of at the link below in the episode description box. A huge thank you once again to Stanley for coming on the podcast, and to you at home for listening. I hope you enjoyed, and until tomorrow, happy reading.